1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Bill Turkell about his new book, Spark from the Deep how shocking experiments with strongly electric fish. Powered Scientific Discovery. This came out with the Johns Hopkins University Press in 2013. Now, this is a really wonderfully engaging book for anyone interested in histories of um, electricity, histories of electric fish, history of animal experimentation, and also the history of the intimacy between conceptions of life and conceptions of and tools of the electric. So on one level, our conversation follows that trajectory and opens up just a few points of interest that emerge from these wonderful chapters that range from the early use of human engagements with electric fish or the possibilities thereof to 19th century and 18th century experiments to the use of fish to understand nerves and synapses. So there's a lot of really wonderful history here that we kind of touch on as, as part of the conversation to come. But an equally fascinating part of this book is the process through which Bill not only conducted his research, but manifest it in an archive, and then wrote about it. And so because one of the things that he's really engaged with and very actively involved with is thinking about and producing sort of workflows and ways of using tools for digital history, you'll also hear in the conversation to come a discussion of how he conducts his research and how he did for this book in particular in terms of a larger field of digital history. We also talk about big history, deep history, and the sort of ways that we can think about and that he thinks about engaging different kinds of archives to tell a story that takes history as it's found in a number of different kinds of sources and disciplinary regimes and weaves them together to tell a larger story. So it's a really fascinating book on a lot of different levels, and I learned a lot from it. So I hope that you have a chance to take a look at the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with William Turkel about his new book, Spark from the Deep. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Bill, and thanks very much for spending time talking with me today. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Hey, Carla, thanks very much. Oh, sorry.
1: No, it's fine. So, Bill, can you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field? How did you come to work on the history of science?
0: Well, actually, I started off as a programmer when I was a kid, and I kind of put myself through uh, a variety of undergraduate degrees by programming either part-time or full-time and then going to school. And so I I studied a bunch of different stuff. Uh, I did some kind of human and animal psychology for a while. I switched into linguistics. I did brain and cognitive science. And then at some point, I kind of realized that I would rather be studying science as, a, as an activity than doing science or doing experiments. So my advisor at the time kept telling me that no one was ever going to hire a psychologist who went to the library instead of <laughs> to the lab. And I realized that uh, it was probably a good idea that to switch fields at that point. But I, I, it wasn't until I was 30 years old that I discovered that I could kind of get paid to read books for a living. So that was pretty sweet.
1: <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> it actually sounds really it familiar is. given my experience too. So the book that we're talking about is super cool, and it's a history of the human understanding and use of electricity through the study of strongly electric fish. And we'll talk about what that means and what these strongly electric fish are um, in the moments to come. So this um, book also gives readers a framework through this study of the use and conceptualization and experience with and living with um, strongly electric fish it gives readers a framework for understanding the origins and the significance of what you call electrophysiological experimentation. So this is a history of fish, it's a history of fish as tools, it's a history of electricity, and it's a history of electrophysiological experimentation. So it works on lots of different levels. So Bill, how did you come to focus on this topic? Can you situate the focus of this book within the larger context of your research and what you've been working on?
0: Um, Sure, yeah, and I guess there's kind of a number of levels to that, too, which we can talk about. But the the kind of immediate context for it was that my previous book was – among other things, it was uh, environmental history. It was history of science and technology. But the, the basic question that I looked at in my first book was how, how people reconstruct various kinds of pasts from physical stuff, from physical evidence like uh, tree rings or geological strata, fish genetics, archaeological sites, all that kind of thing, and, and why they do that. And in that book, I looked at people kind of reconstructing these various sorts of pasts and then using them in the present to do useful work work to do things like uh, fight over whether or not there should be resource development or uh, the preservation of an archaeological site or the preservation of uh, a particular species of, of fish or something like that. Um, and that that kind of uh, point of view, this sort of combination of environmental history, of the history of science, of the history of technology, of deep time, all of those things were kind of already in my work. Um, at that point, and but but basically, the kind of immediate impetus for this was that I was at an environmental history workshop that we organized through Niche, the network in Canadian history and environment. This was, I think, we were meeting at Glendon College. We had these nice little workshops where people were going off into rooms and they were thinking about stuff. And I was feeling grumpy because I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking, environmental history is always about uh, what my friend Alan McKeckern calls nuts and bunnies and squirrels. So it's, it's basically, it's always it's always biological things. And it, I was sitting in this meeting kind of tuning out. I, I don't remember what people were talking about, but I got to thinking, I wonder why nobody ever starts a, an environmental history with the sort of physical world rather than the, rather than the biosphere. You know, I mean, there's stuff about meteorology and weather and stuff like that, but really there's like, you know, one book on those for every hundred books on national parks or something like that. And so a couple I don't know, weeks later, months later, a while later, I got to thinking about the ionosphere. And I was thinking, I wonder if you could write a kind of a book about the environmental history of radio and what that would look like. Mm-hmm. So I started poking around. <laughs> the story gets weirder. I started poking around as see, you know, has anyone ever done this? And I discovered that, in fact, someone had just written a dissertation on this kind of subject, like kind of human interactions with the ionosphere. And and this is a really funny thing: is a guy named Chen Peng uh, Yang, who's oh, yeah, a yeah. historian of physics at, yeah, at the University of Toronto. But the really funny thing was he he was one of the five people in my graduate program in my year in the PhD <laughs> program. And so I was like, "Oh wow, so that's what Chen Ping works on. I, you know, I never knew that sounds really cool. And I, and I see that his book uh, on the subject just came out last year. So that's that's on at the top of my list of fun things to read. Anyway, I realized that Chen Ping had done this uh, book on human ionosphere interactions. But as I was reading about it, I was reading also about the kind of effects of lightning storms on electric fish and i got to thinking hey that's kind of fun and i remembered kind of from my neuroscience or animal cognition days i remembered about electric fish weekly electric fish their kind of sensory systems and stuff like that and i started poking around there and, and looking to see if there might be something interesting
1: that's really cool. And uh, coupled with the description that you just gave of how you came to the field as well, of this kind of very interdisciplinary background spanning the sciences and the humanities and also this interest in constructing pasts from kinds of evidence. And this really makes a lot of sense um, given the book that we're talking about. And I'm sure as we move through our conversation, listeners will also be able to make those links too. I mean, it's really kind of a perfect project for showcasing that. So the book is all about, on some level, tool making and tool use um, in various ways as they engage with uh, the issue of strongly electric fish. And since your process in actually creating the book and doing the research for the book is also really, really fascinating from the perspective of tool making and tool use of a researcher actually doing a history, I'm going to ask you a bunch of stuff about that too. And the plane, perfect. I'm sure the plane flying overhead right now is like, that sounds awesome. And to recording what we're saying, we need to find out what he did to do this research. So definitely I'll make extra sure to ask you about that, that too. So in the book, um, in the introduction, you take us into um, the kind of, you kind of lay the groundwork for understanding the chapters that are to come. So you tell us in the introduction we tend to think about living organisms and electricity as if they occupied different spheres, right? But this separation really only happened in the 19th century. And so we're going to use this study of an engagement with strongly electric fish to sort of trace that genealogy and look at the emergence of that separation as a particular historical moment rather than take it for granted um, as it shaped this history. Now, the book charts a history of intimacy, really, and intimate connections between electricity and life as the one was studied for a very long time with the aid of the other in the guise of strongly strongly electric catfish and rays and eels. These are fascinating creatures on their own right. Now, the central argument of the book, and you lay this out in the introduction, is that our treatment of electric fish as apparatus, and our being really human beings broadly writ, allowed us to create and inhabit electric worlds of our own. Okay, so maybe let's dive in and start out um, by talking about this idea of fish as instruments or tools. Can you kind of open this up for us by just saying a little bit about Um, How did you come to think about this problem in that way? And what do we need to know starting out about how you're conceptualizing fish as instruments for us to then proceed and um, maybe fully appreciate what's happening later in the book?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, and for me, that was that kind of question about whether I was thinking of these fish as uh, animals or whether I was or as other animals or whether I was thinking of them as kind of equipment was one of the ambiguities that became kind of increasingly clear that that, that was sort of where the where the real interest in the story for me lay. So basically, like. Oh, lots of other species. Basic we are the kind of history of interactions with strongly electric fish is a history of first of all, you know, kind of handling them, then trying to do things with them, you know, whether it's eating them or thinking of their ability to deliver these powerful shocks as as some kind of symbolic function. People use them for as long as we know, basically, these records go back to antiquity and there's kind of archaeological evidence for for these kinds of uses before that but basically people used the shock of these fishes which is considerable to for various kind of therapeutic things so to treat migraine for instance but although there's a one of the kind of ancient physicians says basically that you shouldn't use the fish, the torpedo in this case, on a person's head too many times in a row, otherwise they might kind of become permanently numb. <laughs> I know it's just kind of horrifying and yet at the same time oddly compelling uh, reading. But the the, the idea that it, the cultures, the kind of cultures of uh, Africa, of the Mediterranean basin, of the South America, were very familiar with these animals, you know, far far predating human writing, basically, so the, the early story really has to be figured out from other kinds of evidence than written sources. And and this idea that that you could do something with these animals, something useful, whether that was conceived of, you know, in kind of magical terms or what, that in either way, it's, it's something that, that was kind of a resource in their environment. And so for me, really, the, the kind of earliest story is just showing, first of all, that these fish evolved their, their uh, capability to shock long before people evolved, and that the environment where people did evolve was, these would have been a very salient part of their environment. And really, until the last couple hundred years, the only way that people could kind of reliably and repeatably and non-lethally experience electric shock was by touching one of these animals. <laughs>
1: Now, you've mentioned um, sort of one of the, one of many, but one of the really fascinating things about this book as a product of a process, right? Sort of as a product of a particular set of research and writing decisions and practices is this engagement with non-written evidence, right? Other kinds of evidence that are not just textual sources. And this brings us, I think, really nicely into the first chapter and the issue of big history, so the book takes, explicitly takes a, a big history approach to the history of science. Um, can you uh, sort of talk a little bit about what does this mean to you for you? What are the benefits of, well, what is a big history approach for you? What are the benefits of this um, in terms of the story that you wanted to tell? And how did you decide to expand out into that kind of scope and scale for this project?
0: So, okay, so for me, basically, big history is the idea that we should try to reconcile what we know about the human past, which we construct from uh, mostly from written evidence, but also from other kinds of uh, evidence, whether it's symbolic or or it's um, uh, of other sorts. What we know about that past, we can reconcile with... The past that we that we reconstruct from the historical sciences, so sciences like geology and evolution, uh, are um, they're archival in the sense that they collect. That, that, that it happened one particular way it's a kind of a research question or maybe a philosophical question about what would have happened if things had gone slightly differently if you if you were somehow able to play this tape twice would you get the same kind of unfolding of plants or animals or or geological uh, uh, structures and so so reconciling those two kind of historical but mm, but different views of the past is, I think, what what makes something a big history. Some people call it deep history. I, I tend to think of big history as going back to, to pre-human and possibly uh, pre-biotic pasts. And deep history is kind of connecting human humankind with their closer mam- mammalian kin, uh, other hominins, and stuff like that. I
1: mean, this is actually, it's really, really, just kind of, to kind of take a moment and talk about this in larger terms, and then we'll talk about it in the context of the of this project, but it's really interesting because more and more um, in the reading I'm doing for you know podcasts and, and beyond, I'm seeing more and more people getting interested in taking a kind of big history approach and explicitly for the reasons that you're saying, right? This sort of as we're thinking more pluralistically about what constitutes an archive about what history yeah. looks like, right, and where history is and who gets to write it, right, and, and what counts as a history. I think there's more and more interest in thinking beyond not just um, kind of local historiographical approaches in terms of, you know, different language archives, different institutional approaches to his- historiography, but also looking to what are really historical practices in the sciences and the constructions of an archive by you know, paleontologists and people who work with the genome and things like that, is you know, conducting kinds of history and making these histories and these kinds of archives speak to each other um, I think it's just really really interesting there's a new Max Planck Institute devoted to this kind of way of thinking across histories and sciences as forms of archives and forms of history and I think there's a really interesting future for this kind of work as well
0: yeah, that's cool. I, I didn't know about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, are there other approaches to um, this kind of big history or deep history that you found inspiring in thinking about engaging this as a framework for this book?
0: Well, I think, I mean, I think the thing, part of what recommends this kind of approach, I think, is that within, you know, the last 10 or 15 years, we've come to take it for granted that we all have always on instant access to the sum of the world's knowledge. And I think it becomes... Well, for some people at least, it becomes harder and harder to imagine that these little uh, containers that we used to use, whether it was a region or a, a particular span of five years or a particular uh, language group or whatever, that, that, that these little historiographical containers make as much sense as they used to. And I think that the kind of ability to see everything all the time on demand gives us a more synoptic, uh, approach to knowledge, to or at least has the potential to. Not everyone is willing to uh, engage with the fire hose in that sense.
1: That's right. I mean I'm seeing also a lot of people in global history starting to engage historical linguistics as sort of right. part of what they're doing, which is I think another um, kind of area of this kind of experimentation with historiography that's really interesting.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really cool, Phil.
1: So the first chapter, um, as an uh, kind of an example of what we mean by this big history as it manifests here, the first chapter chronicles the earliest history of human interaction with strongly electric fish from, um, in part, the earliest pictorial and written descriptions in ancient Egypt. So it's a really interesting archive. And as we'll see when we get to the end of the book, the conclusion will take us back even further all the way to the Big Bang, right? So it's, it's kind of an amazing and really innovative and inventive way of thinking about scope and archive. So there's a key tenet that you introduce early in the book, Um, and and I'll just, I think these are your words, similar regimes recur across different spatial and temporal scales, right? So this is a very thoughtful reason for using this, Um, thinking about similar regimes recurring across different spatial and temporal scales. Now, one of the regimes that becomes really, really important in shaping really what's happening in all of the chapters is something called niche construction theory, okay? And this, uh, briefly put, is a theory that an organism's activities modify the environment in which it lives and that this transformation in turn changes the possibilities of its future. So this gets us to the kind of um, living in an electric world and world-making through these fish. Can you talk a little bit about um, this niche construction theory as you find it useful for thinking through um, this particular archive? Sort of, How did you hit upon this and... Why for you did this emerge or how did this emerge or transform into a key way that you were thinking about this archive?
0: Right, yeah, that's a great question. So when I first, I mean, when, when I was originally thinking of this as an environmental kind of an environmental history project of a sort one of the one of the key ideas I think that most environmental historians espouse in some form or other although they're in environmental history usually goes by the name of a dialectic or something like that but the basic idea is that people or societies uh, do particular things to and in their environments and that 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 then has an effect that feeds back on the people or the society. Some things become possible as a result of particular kinds of uh, actions, and some things become impossible. And so that when you think about telling a story of environmental history, you're always talking about not just what effect do people have on their immediate environment, but what effect does the environment in turn have on the people, and so on, back and forth in this kind of feedback cycle. And the um, But the, the timescales on which people... Often, right? Environmental histories are relatively short, or relatively circumscribed in space. Uh, and so, when I when I started thinking of this story, when I started thinking how could I tell the story not only of how people came to live in an electric world, but how the fish came to live in an electric world of their own, I knew I was going to have to engage with evolutionary time as well as as kind of historical time or deep time. And so that so I I went looking. In the envi- in the um, evolutionary literature, and I, I came across this idea of niche construction theory, and and it was new to me at the time. And as as far as I know, I mean, at the time this was when I was working on the book, it was probably three or four years ago. I couldn't find any other environmental historians who had made this kind of parallel between the dialectic of environmental history and and niche construction theory and in, in evolutionary uh, theory, but. It seemed like such a nice match that I, that I was, you know, quite interested to find that stuff and read it. And then as often happens, I mean, to me at least, I probably spent months reading up on literature that never actually made it into the book because it was just too much fun to, you know, you know how it goes. It's too much fun to, to stop reading. And so you end up learning a bunch of neat stuff that you then forget and didn't actually end up citing. But it was, it was awesome at the time.
1: And this, I think, actually brings us really nicely um, into another cluster of um, questions and really fascinating kind of um, issues about about the practice of creating the book. But before I get there, I'll just, I mean, listening to you talk about, um, you know, these issues of big history and sources also makes me think that this is also a really interesting approach from the perspective of how a lot of us who aren't maybe um, self-identifying as in the field of environmental history um, have encountered some environmental history literature that for example um, in recent years and maybe not so recent years talks about the importance of considering histories like from the perspective of non-human actors right yeah I mean what you're doing here in thinking about and constructing your archive in these very on these multiple levels right to include, um, uh, environmental, or to, to think about the kinds of archives that emerge from these different kinds of sources is really taking that a step further in a way, and not just sort of asking, you know, how do we give a non-human actors agency in the story, but also considering, okay, so what if we thought about what constituted an archive from the perspective of, you know, broadly, roughly speaking, a non-human actor? Well, that archive would have to include other kinds of materials, right? Other kinds of um, information. So I think this is also a really interesting way of pushing back on the idea of an archive from this perspective and I hadn't thought of that before. So thank
0: you. Oh, you're welcome.
1: (laughs) Super cool. Okay, so sources. Um, so let's use this as a chance to talk about the kinds of sources that went into your research here and also you know, how you found and dealt with them because this is really, really, really fascinating. And selfishly, I just kind of want to hear all about this. Um, so in making the book, um, just to kind of start out, you talk about the importance of working entirely with digital sources. So maybe can you start us off along this path by talking a little bit about that. Um, Why was it important for you to work with entirely digital sources? And for you, what kinds of opportunities does that open up for the way you're writing history here?
0: So, yeah, so that's a great question. Well, as, as I mentioned, my kind of earliest, the sort of earliest background in this stuff really started when i was a a teenager and i learned how to program and i got interested in electronics at around that time i didn't i didn't really do much with the electronics but i kept programming kind of continually from then until now and so even when i was in graduate school in the in the 90s and early 2000s and working on my first book i was thinking that the kind of ongoing digitization of everything and the and the access to the internet and stuff like that the faster better cheaper computers that all of that would quite quickly remake at least the, our possibilities for doing kind of any kind of humanistic inquiry history among among everything else in, in that sense and so really for me the this book was my second book i already had a tenure track job in fact I already had tenure, I guess when I started writing this book, so so that it wasn't really risky for me to stop. For it, as it turned out, about three weeks to maybe three weeks to a month, and re- try to rethink everything about my own research practice and workflow and writing practice and all of that stuff. And basically, what I did was I I took everything apart into the sort of smallest pieces that I could think of, and then I auditioned different ways of making them more efficient or more fun or better, faster, cheaper, whatever. And that, as I say, that that prompt that at that time probably only took me three weeks or a month. But I realized that if I kind of did everything digitally, worked only with digital sources, digitized anything that wasn't already digital, and then used computers to do that kind of heavy lifting on everything that didn't require my own care and attention, that that would speed things up. And it did. It's, it sped things up ridiculously fast. Um, but not only that, it kind of gave me the power to do things that used That used to be hard or difficult. So I'll I'll give you a couple examples. One thing that every, I think everyone who's ever written a book, at least up until recently, has had this experience. And that is you go and you read a ton of stuff and then you know that there was an awesome quote or anecdote or whatever that you just absolutely positively have to find. And you can spend weeks or months trying to find that. It's just horrifying that's that's one thing that's not a problem if all of if you see something, my kind of motto was if I looked at something, I made a digital copy and saved it in in as in a way that a computer could look at it the next time so that was one kind of a thing. A second thing just comes down to the kind of anxiety around what happens if the house burns down or my computer crashes or I lose a copy of this thing, and so having an entirely digital uh, work process, having everything digital means that it could be kind of backed up hourly. Like I find writing to be such a painful process that, that I don't want to lose even 20 minutes worth of, of struggle getting some prose on the paper. <laughs> and so having that backed up continuously offsite, you know, so if Godzilla steps on my house, I'm not going to lose my book at least, you know, that was, that was a huge advantage for me. Um, <laughs> And the other thing, and this, this is a kind of an after-the-fact thing, but you know, prior to, to chatting with you today, I just went into my computer and I opened up all of the files the way that I left them, basically, when I sent the last revision off to the press. And everything is here exactly the way I left it, and all my notes, all the pictures, all the sources – I have a things to do list with a whole bunch of things that actually never ended up getting done on it. And I can kind of see where it was at the moment that I wrapped the project and, and sent it off. And so that sense of being able to kind of resurrect or reanimate, if you want to use metaphors from the book, the whole kind of thinking that went into this thing, that's, that's all right there in, in the digital sources. But it's way more than that in some sense.
1: I mean, you talk, um, let's just continue to talk about this because it's so fascinating and it's so important for understanding what's happening in the book. Like, beyond digitizing sources, you actually talk in the book about the importance of creating an ecology. So again, or engaging this and encountering this environmental studies world, right? Creating an ecology of interacting programs to deal with those sources. So um, what are, I mean, for somebody who... Um, is compelled by your explanation and justification for, for doing this and who might want to get started themselves. In the case of this book in particular, what were some of the most important of those programs within that ecology? And can you just kind of open that up a little bit for us?
0: Yeah, for sure. So so basically the 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 one thing that I did on my previous book which made a huge difference was just to use some bibliographic software. So whenever I collected a source, I would be disciplined about collecting the citation and saving a copy of the source with the citation. So so that's that's a kind of a key part of anything like this. There's also three other I guess there's other three three other kind of areas that are really important. One of those is in finding sources. So one of the techniques which I use, and, and you can do this with some off-the-shelf software, sometimes you want to write your own, depending on what you're doing, is you write little computer programs that start with something that you have, a source, and that they, they extract every bit of information that they can from that particular source. And then they go online and they try to find related stuff. So as a kind of a quick example, you could run a text of any kind i usually split things into small pages because that works out better but you you run a page through a program and it identifies all the people all the locations all the organizations sometimes the dates sometimes things like currency values that kind of thing and just identifies each of those and then you can automate the searching uh, hyperlinks pulls out hyperlinks, you, you can automate the searching from that source to other related sources. So if you have a name in an organization, you can automatically fire off a search to Google or whatever that will then return, or in a, a bibliographic database, JSTOR, something like that, that will then return sources that are related to that person, that organization, that place, that time, that kind of thing. So the sort of automated in the background, I kind of constantly have these programs running, searching for stuff for me that might be relevant. So that's one kind of thing. When you have all those sources in digital form, the kind of next level of uh, doing fun things with them is to take you can take something and you can find everything in it that is related to that source. So, for example, I could highlight a paragraph in my notes and I could say, Show me everything that's related to this paragraph. Or I could highlight a footnote. This is where it gets really fun. You can highlight a footnote and say, Show me everything that's related to this footnote. And because you've kind of intentionally created a small archive on the order of 5,000 or 10,000 sources, when you search for a person's name or an organization or a location or a date, those, the hits that you get are super relevant. And so I could look, safe at someone's footnotes. I won't name any names here, but but some of the historians that I really respected, 20th century historians, have really garbagey footnotes because it used to be really hard to track down every source that a person cited. But if you have those sources and you have the footnote, all of the little errors that people made in their citation and all that stuff, that just is kind of glaring. It just sort of pops out at you and you see those and you feel like you just know. For sure, that you someone else is going to do this to your book in five or ten years, and and oh, likewise, no. you don't want it. <laughs> yeah, when I talk to students about this, some of them say things like, "I'm not, I'm not comfortable with the idea of that level of scrutiny," and I'm like, "Get used to it, because you know what what we can do now, soon everyone will be doing." So there's there's this idea of the the techniques there are are using things like what are called uh, clustering. And in this is specifically this is unsupervised clustering. So you use a kind of a statistical measures. Similarity between texts, so that you don't have to decide that this paragraph is related to these other paragraphs. The software kind of does it for you, and you do what historians have always done, which is kind of close reading, interpreting, writing. That's the hard part, and then um, and making sense of it all. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you find that, or did you find that when working on the book, using these, what sounds like really amazing um, tools for sort of really transforming your workflow? Was this? Did this change the kinds of questions that you were bringing to your sources? Like, did this transform how you were thinking of what you were producing when you were producing a history of this? Um, this kind of apparatus, this um, object.
0: I think it. I think it really does change the way that you write because, in some sense. It, there's there's still like there's no replacement for for the kind of human interpreter and and it, you know in history really it's selection and interpretation basically the writing of history but the the ability to gather sources which may or may not be relevant and then to have a machine go through and 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 say to you i think that these are most relevant or i think that this is what you're just what you're looking for right now you you start to make a lot of discoveries that um, feel very serendipitous. Like you're, that's it's exactly the thing you needed at that point, or that's exactly the anecdote, or this is something that you you couldn't make it up. It's so it's so good, and it fits in so well at the point where you where you happen to be working. And I think that that kind of experience becomes more and more familiar the more you work with with these kind of machine tools.
1: Were there any um, serendipitous discoveries like that that immediately stand out to you? That happened when you were doing the research for the strongly electric fish book.
0: Uh, let me think. That's a good question. I know question. I'm sort of
1: hitting you with this uh, all of a sudden, but <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, I'm feeling. You know, actually, I think there definitely are. So basically, one of the things that when I first started uh, looking into the electric, the strongly electric fish, you find you find a lot of stuff about ancient Egypt and the sort of wacky things that Greek. The Greeks did to one another using these vicious therapy, that kind of thing. But the and and I had a sense also from just from sort of studying history of science, and especially at studying um, with Harriet Ritvo, who who works on uh, Darwin and nineteenth century evolution and stuff like that. I, I kind of knew that there was a, a Darwin story in there, but I didn't. I didn't have nearly the same kind of understanding of or appreciation for. Uh, the work that had been done in German, the kind of German electrophysiological labs, and the and the earlier work in sort of Romantic uh, science. Like I knew that in some sense, I knew that stuff was there, but I hadn't. I just really hadn't appreciated the extent of it and and sort of how well and it it would fit in and how interesting it would be.
1: That's awesome. Thank you. Um. So you talk. You do have a website, and I'll link to this for. Um, listeners so that they can go and look and explore on their own as well and maybe sort of try out some of these methodologies. But you have a website that um, takes us through some of your recommendations for how to construct a workflow that you know enabled ostensibly the work for the book and also might enable the work for many other books in many other fields. And it starts with um, some of the issues that you talked about, right? A backup strategy, making everything digital, using RSS feeds, right, to, yeah. to sort of... Um, Uh, use uh, really be doing research as you put it 24 7 using what you call spiders to collect sources is that kind of what you were mentioning before these
0: yeah absolutely okay
1: Um, and then what you call bursting documents is that what you meant by breaking up the documents into these little chunks
0: yeah i 'll give you an example of, of both of those things so So when you go to the web to search uh, Google or Bing or whatever the there is there is no c- kind of current map of the web. What you get instead is that the search engine companies send out these little programs which are called spiders or bots or whatever and what they do is they download a page extract all the information off it index it pull out all the hyperlinks and then follow each of those hyperlinks in turn download all the pages extract all the links and so on if you do if you try to do that on the web on a web scale it's it's a super hard problem that requires more resources than scholars have but if you do it in a kind of a focused way if you're looking for something in particular if you're spidering outwards from A source that's really relevant to you, then you can do, you can use these kind of tools to quickly gather a a digital archive of of pointers and abstracts and and full text documents and so on. So that's the kind of spidering bit. What I found was once I started doing this clustering uh, work on the texts was that I, and in fact, I remember the exact book. It was a 19th century book, which was kind of a timeline. And I think it was called something like, and now I'm just making this up, so <laughs> you probably won't be able to find this exactly. But but I got it from the Internet Archive. It was a 19th century book. And it was called something like A History of Electricity from the Earliest Times to the Present. And basically, it was just like a, a kind of a timeline that... That included everything electrical as seen in the late 19th century in this sort of huge encyclopedia type thing. And so what I found originally was every time I did a search or I tried to cluster a paragraph, it would tell me that book was relevant because something in that <laughs> book was relevant. And I realized that that's exactly the kind of granularity that you don't need. So what I do instead now is if whenever I get a source, no matter how long it is, I keep the original source. so I can look back at it and use it for other things. But I also split it into little chunks. And each one of those pages gets indexed on its own rather than indexed as part of this big big blob. And so instead of knowing that that book is relevant, I now know that, say, you know, page 373 of that book is strongly relevant to to my current interest. So that's the bursting, yeah.
1: Awesome, and we've um, we also talked a little bit before we started recording about other kinds of tools, and I won't um, belabor this, but just to kind of mention for listeners, you do mention using Scrivener as one of your tools as well. So for the um, just to kind of talk about the moving from the research to the writing process, and I know they're part of the same process, right? I know we can't really separate them, but um, you sort of mentioned writing tools and programs that also let us break down. Are writing into chunks that are manageable, right? Have you did you find that that was really important in or sort of transformative in the kind of writing that you did for Spark from the Deep?
0: Yeah, per, yeah. Per, personally, I feel like just spending the fifty dollars or whatever it was on Scrivener probably doubled my writing speed. So, so, so you you say, well, you don't know when the research ends and the writing begins. I know it's when it starts hurting because I hate writing. <laughs> The other part, the reading and thinking, that part is totally joyful. But as soon as I have to start putting words down of my own, it becomes very painful. So, yeah, the ability to to write in little chunks. And, and also for me, um, because I tend not to work from outlines, that was, again, something that Harriet Ripo taught me was not to work from outlines, but instead to work from, you know, precis or bits of prose instead, because I don't work from outlines, It's more of a challenge for me to keep track of how long each chapter should be. And within the chapters, I try to break each chapter up into six or seven little named sections. I think in this book, I'm pretty rigid about breaking each chapter into about six little sections. And each chapter is about 12,000 words long. And one of the really nice things about Scrivener is it lets you work in these little tiny chunks that you can rearrange and rethink. So if I'm writing a section and it's getting on for more than, say, 2,500, 2,800 words, then I know that section is getting pretty long. And the other sections in that same chapter are going to have to be a bit shorter. And so I I think in terms of the pacing of the whole book, like what, what do the chapters feel like? How long is each one? What's the kind of point that it makes? How long does it take to unfold in real time? How long does it, what kind of transitions? I'm not very good at things like topic sentences and transitions. And so often that's a process that I have to go back and then think about again. Did I make a transition from this section to that section? I also like to have fun. And this is Probably just more for my own amusement, I like to have fun doing things like thinking of a section in one chapter mirroring a section in another chapter, or doing something uh sometimes it overturns another chap- another section or reflects on it in some interesting way or parallels it in a weird way or something like that and so So, there's a lot for me like there's a lot of the fun of writing such as it is <laughs> comes in those <laughs> comes in those kind of experiences again I, I mean like i don't know if you know Harriet well she she's a wonderful mentor and friend, and she's uh but she says some funny things like she she I remember her telling me on a couple of occasions that she writes first for her own amusement and then for other people and I, and i I know what she's talking about because there's a sense in which I am having fun with those kind of things, even if getting you know getting the prose out sometimes really hurts. <laughs>
1: So there actually um, are, now that you are mentioning, or I'm glad that you're mentioning explicitly this kind of, the way that the sections in the different chapters really speak to each other, because it's definitely something that I noticed as a reader, and it's a really, really nice aspect of the book. So one of the things, or one of the kinds of um, objects that comes up repeatedly throughout, but specifically that kind of comes up in an early chapter, and then we come back to it in a later chapter, is the idea of a battery, Right. Um, so after the first chapter where you set out this um, deep history, introduce us to sources like fish remains, fossil and tool assemblages, evidence for human migrations that would have enabled the kind of encounters with fish, then you take us into a series of chapters that kind of chronicle, um, but not, you know, in a straightforward chronological way, really in a, in a wonderfully thematic way, I think a history of moments of experimentation and tool use and refiguring of the tool of the fish as a kind of tool in many different ways in different kinds of contexts. So the first context or one of the early contexts rather in which this is happening is a context in which sort of as you're putting it here, thinking of the fish as a tool kind of opens up a possibility of building an artificial device that might be able to mimic the shock of electric fish. And here's where we have um, uh, this, this emergence of what seems to be a really crucial technology in this book, which is the Leiden jar. Okay. Right. So so that we can talk about a little bit, you know, just a few specifics to kind of open this up for listeners. Um, Can what for you is, uh, or what for the book rather, is a Leiden jar and what's so important for this in the context of the larger argument that you're making about sort of the use of fish as tools and the um, sort of use of fish in terms of building artificial devices that uh, eventually allow an electric world?
0: So the the kind of, as we were um, talking about earlier, the kind of people's only experience with what we now think of as an electric shock was handling these fish that were capable of giving them a pretty, you know, a pretty strong jolt. So the 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 least uh, strong of the fishes is described like being um, zapped by one of these is described uh, by some diver as like being hit by a very large fist. So you can imagine, and and some of the descriptions of the kind of pain and and torpor and and uh, disorientation and numbness that people feel after being zapped by an electric fish are. It's it's pretty. It's obviously a, a very kind of uh, intense event. In the period um, leading up to you know what we might call the scientific revolution, although of course that term is a bit problematic, but in the period leading up to that time, there were a lot of different explanations for how the fish might work so one of the one of the factors here is that you can sometimes handle one of these fish without getting zapped, so there's a kind of a volitional aspect on the part of the fish as to whether it's upset with you or not. Uh, The fish gets exhausted after a while and stops, you know, it stops being able to shock as strongly. But also because it is electricity, it can be transmitted through things like wet, uh, through salty water, through wet nets or spears, tridents, that kind of thing. And so it's a force that's that's extremely salient, very unpleasant, that happens only around a few animals, and that can. And it's a kind of action at a distance. And so the explanation for what could have possibly caused this, people had lots of different explanations. Is it like a kind of a poison? Is it like a kind of a gas? Is it like a coldness? Maybe that's why you feel numb after touching it is because it's kind of a coldness. Is it a vapor? Is it a weird effluvium? So just tons of different explanations. When people made the Leiden jar, and you can think of a Leiden jar in contemporary terms as kind of a big capacitor, it's basically an, an object that could store an electrical uh, charge and then discharge it very rapidly when you when you connect the leads, as it were. And so what the Leiden, the reason the Leiden jar was so important was because for the first time, it, people were able to create a physical object it produced exactly the same kind of sensation as an electric fish and could operate under many of the same kinds of conditions. So it wasn't that it was like poison or it was like numbness or cold or g- gas or whatever. It was exactly like this, the shock from a Leiden jar. Mm-hmm. Thank you so that much. That was Oh yeah, for sure. That that was kind of electrically important. But over the long run in order to get the most out of electricity as a technology, people needed ways of storing it and releasing it as a steady current rather than as a big blast. And so we don't we don't use Leiden jars per se to to store electricity anymore. You use things like batteries instead. Okay.
1: And so from um, these early chapters, and we're you know there's so much in the book, and we can't possibly um, be comprehensive in and, and relating all of it, but just to give listeners a taste so that they can pick up the book and um, and ap- approach it themselves and experience it themselves. But from the um, early parts of the book, you talk about not only the Leiden jars, but ways of conceptualizing the fish's body as a series of Leiden jars connected in a battery, which brings us ultimately all the way down to you know the construction of a battery. And Leiden jars keep coming up. Now, another aspect of what you just said also um, becomes really, really important insofar as this is a history of not just the use of strongly electric fish as a tool, but it's also a kind of history of sensation, right? Of the production of sensation, of handling, of touch, and a, a history of intimacy between humans and electricity and that sort of sensory perception that comes from that intimacy, So the successive chapters, and, you know, again, we won't have time to talk about all of them, but take us through different spaces in which this intimacy is being produced and in which this kind of sensation is being produced and conceptualized at different moments from electrophysiology, where you talk about, among other things, experiments on um, sort of experiments with electric, electrocuting rather larger and larger animals and also cells, right? right? Humans.
0: Right, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Batteries
1: of Leiden jars, and so there's like you know there's all kinds of funky stories here with you know Volta experiments with electric shocks on himself. Alexander von Humboldt is doing electrical experiments with torpedoes. There's a lot of um, discussion of kinds of therapy and medical experimentation here, and you bring, that brings us into a chapter um, that looks among other things at the use of electricity to shock people. So not just large animals now, sort of horses and um, frogs and people and living people, but also the use of electricity to shock dead people back to life, or at least to try to do that. Um, So there's a lot of really interesting cases in here. Um, What are some of your favorite cases, maybe one or two of your favorite cases of this, um, and or sort of what for you is important about these experiments to shock people back to life in terms of this larger argument that you're making with the book?
0: Right, yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that was so interesting for me was the this aspect that you uh, mentioned of the kind of intimacy of, of this, because it's not just, as you say, it's not just a kind of an external or objective story about fish or about technology, about electricity. It's really the story about people hurting themselves over and over in some cases and hurting other organisms in an attempt to figure out what this kind of mysterious fluid is and how it works and so so for me one of the kind of most uh engaging things but also obviously one of the most disturbing things was the the was people's kind of willingness that you see over and over here in the again in this particular context their willingness to kind of build apparatus that includes themselves that includes how they feel when they touch something that includes other animals that includes vivisected animals or pieces of animals or heaps of frog legs that have just been severed from the animal's bodies that kind of thing just really really kind of these very heterogeneous uh, assemblages of person animal animal stuff and machine and for me the kind of one of the really interesting questions that kept coming up was the ways that they used these things, including kind of sentiment or, or in intimacy with the machine, as a way to try to figure out where the boundaries are between people and animals, be- other animals, between animals of all kinds and machines, between people and machines, and also between the living and the dead. So, there's a, as you say, there's a kind of a chapter in the middle that explores. The use of electricity for resuscitation, and we now take for granted things like the kind of um, uh, defibrillating electrical paddles that kind of restart your heart. But but those came from somewhere, and and the, the somewhere that they came from was a lot of greasy, gruesome electrocution experiments done with chickens and horses and goats and that kind of thing. There's in addition to that kind of resuscitation story, there's also this kind of reanimation or attempted reanimation story. So ranging from things like trying to recover, uh, trying to bring back to life someone who's just drowned to... Uh, Taking the bodies of recently killed people in the French Revolution, uh, recently executed uh, criminals in Britain and stuff like that, and zapping the heck out of them to kind of, in some sense, almost see if you could bring them back to life. Or just, I mean, just as a very gruesome demonstration as kind of a bullock's head is cut off and zapped and it behaves just like a uh, recently hanged criminal's head when, when you zap him. So that that were you know recently guillotined uh, a, a victim of the French Revolution, they take the heads and cart them away and zap them with electricity and get the eyelids to twitch and the um, face to form a gross rictus, that kind of thing. But there's also in the same in the same kind of chapter, there's also this this idea of uh, the electrical creation of life, and so there's this uh, business with Cross in in uh, 19th century Britain, where he subjects this. Rock To an electrical current, and then discovers all of these little animals crawling around on it and, and it becomes kind of accepted among at least some circles at the time that, that there that an electrical creation of life has been demonstrated, and so even though uh, people like um, Darwin or Faraday have no kind of time for this because it's they re- they think it's you know obviously bogus at the same time there's a thought that. The first life, the kind of abiotic—if you—if you frame it in terms of Darwin or uh, or uh, the evolutionary works before him—there's a sense that, that that electricity has to play some role in the kind of creation and evolution of of life. And so that, it, so there's a lot of really interesting kind of threads that go back and forth, you know, ranging from the shocking or gruesome to to uh, these more kind of esoteric things.
1: That's right. There's actually a whole um, chapter devoted to looking at evolutionary theories as they engage um, these fish and these practices. And for um, listeners who are interested in that part of the story, too, chapter five looks at the vestiges um, and also looks at Darwin, among other things, and Faraday and Um, In particular, Darwin's puzzling out and puzzling over the electric fish. Like, how could these organs arise, these electric organs as he's understanding them, in the fish without apparent precursors? So there's a really interesting story here as well um, about the engagement of these problems and these apparatus with the emergence of ways of thinking about and practicing evolutionary theory. There's also, and so now I'm blitzing through. So listeners should know there's a whole range of really fascinating stories, right? I mean, there's so much happening um, in these chapters. There's a whole chapter on the concept of um, electric uh, or animal electricity, electrophysiology. So in that chapter, you'll meet Dubois uh, Raymond with his frog interrupter. There's a machine for studying electric catfish Um, It's sort of a a machine for collecting its electricity. There's a whole discussion of the use of animal parts for studying electrical equipments. There's just this wonderful range of stories from the 19th century and beyond. Um, Now, you also talk here about, and I want to make sure that we talk about this a little bit, you also talk in Chapter 7 about the use of electrical fish as model systems. Now, because animals as model systems um, I, this is such an important topic within the history of science. Um, let's just spend at least a few moments on this. Now, you talk about the use of the torpedo, for example, as a model system for studying nerves um, and right. synapses, which is really interesting in part because this is a moment where the story moves from a history with touch to really a history of touch, right? This sort of There's just so many levels in which this sort of felt sensation and intimacy becomes part of the story and here it becomes part of how we understand nerves themselves right and how they create sensation um so would you talk a little bit about this part of the story the the electrical fish is a model system and for you what's really interesting about this moment in the story
0: so for me i guess so there's a couple things that happen towards the end of the book one is that uh we mentioned that Darwin had this had this difficulty in trying to explain how a, how these strongly electric fish could have arisen because he couldn't imagine in his context what use it would be to have a kind of a weekly weakly electric system, but in the mid 20th century there is a discovery that in fact there are a lot of fish are capable of sensing electric fields and some of them are capable of generating these weak electric fields for communication and for sensing and stuff like that so so that's one of the in some sense getting to the weakly electric fish was one of the things that i was thinking as i was kind of exploring the uses to which people put electric fish and and also the kind of relationship with electrophysiology the other thing that happens and this is in some sense it's a kind of a parallel story is that the ongoing kind of technological developments in electricity and and this is the stuff that you would typically find in a kind of a history of physics approach to electricity that, that this that these lead to technologies that are much more subtle that allow people to perceive uh electrical events that are very, very uh, weak and occur very quickly. They're, They're transient, they're weak, and they need to be, there's this kind of whole story of first of all, the kind of amplification and perception of those signals with with various kinds of tools that eventually result in the oscilloscope. And there's also the idea that not only electricity can be put to useful work, but that, that the kind of newly discovered electrons themselves can be put to work. And this is where, in the early 20th century, electronics branches off from, from electricity. And so part of the... Part of the story for me that was really interesting about what's what's going on with these fish is they do serve as model systems in a number of different ways, and it goes in in kind of different directions. And some, for the strongly electric fish, it's in part due to the specialized um, muscular and, and neural tissues that allow them to to deliver these big blasts of electricity. But there's also a kind of a a sense in which having Experienced these fish for so long and lived with them, and in some ways tried to to use them, to tried to build kind of technologies that that come from them. That the, the, the descendant technologies, especially the electronic ones, then allow us to learn far more things about these fish than we otherwise would have known. So that the, the kind of from the mid 19th century to the mid late 20th century, the story for me is really one of about about this idea that. Electrons themselves, in the sense of electronics, rather than just electricity, become a kind of a universal currency into which all other measurements in the world can be translated. And if you think of something like your, uh, like a smartphone today, a smartphone, or a, uh, a new car, or something like that, has hundreds of different sensors in it that translate all different kinds of things into a, a very small and weak electrical signal or an electrical charge, electrical current voltage. Um, so these kind of electric, electronic measurements become literally analogs of stuff that happens in, in the physical world. And that this this kind of the sort of electronics, the rendering into electronics of everything and then rendering it back out is what kind of underlies our sort of electric and electronic world and so that for me that was really the story the fish the fish don't serve as models for that i mean they serve as model systems in some sense but it's kind of more this interaction with the fish that gives us this this rich electric world that we ourselves live in and and I, i kind of wanted to to sort of get to that point before i wrapped up the book
1: and speaking of wrapping up the book, this wouldn't be complete unless we got there, right? So the conclusion actually takes us out to I mean, you go all the way out to the Big Bang and the conclusion, right? So speaking of big history, um, this is pretty this is pretty massive and pretty big. Um, and it's a really, I think, powerful um, way to end the book and to sort of bring us back um, at the very end. do you want to maybe talk just a little bit about that um, the sort of what's happening in this conclusion as you're moving out in this way?
0: yeah so so one of the so one of the kind of um, there's a there's a couple of exemplars of big history that that have been very influential, like David christian's maps of time and and so one of the kind of characteristics or hallmarks of big history in that formulation is to start. The story at the Big Bang and ended in the present or ended in the near future or something like that. And as I was thinking about this book, it kind of occurred to me that I did still want to get that whole sweep into the story. But instead of framing the whole book that way, I framed the book on a kind of a slightly tighter timescale that includes other hominins and stuff like that comes into the present so you know only a few million years and then for the conclusion I would then situate that story in the kind of longer term story that runs from the the big bang to the present and that in in that really what I try to get to in the conclusion is that there's a sense in which everything that's alive is living in an electric world and that's because well first of all everything that's kind of big is held together with electromagnetic forces there's uh, everything that's alive alive makes use of, basically, of electrons that have been excited and then are kind of returning to a ground state via a pathway where you can extract a little bit of work from them. So there's a sense, there's that sense in which things are alive. There's a sense in which um, animals of various kinds are able to perceive electric forces or geomagnetic ones and that kind of thing and so on. So there's, I'm trying to go, I try to fit the whole sort of previous book basically into a much longer time scale that 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 kind of points out first of all how pervasive how pervasive electric worlds really are and at the same time tries to kind of bring some of the themes together
1: Great. so bill there's a ton of material well first of all thank you so much i mean there's a ton of material Um, in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, and there's a much, much richer conversation we could have that could span hours if we had them. But since we don't have them, um, is there anything in particular, either about um, the sort of methods that produce the book or about the content of the book itself that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? No, I mean, I think
0: I think we did a basically good job of kind of conveying w- what sort of a book this is. You know, if, if you're interested in in animal experimentation, if you're interested in electrical or electronic technologies, if you like weird uh, medical stories or or natural history stories, then probably you'll find something that's fun there. And if not, you, you know to avoid the book and <laughs> perhaps move on to something you like better.
1: <laughs> so speaking of moving on, now that the book is done, and congratulations on the book, this has been a super... Super fun to talk with you about, and it was super fun to read. And also, um, I've learned a lot, both about electricity, um, big history, and also about what it means and what it can look like to produce a book. What's next for you? Are there any projects right now that are um, particularly exciting or inspiring you?
0: So I am I am working on a couple of kind of content related projects. So I, I, one one is about um, I've been working on this idea that, that people could build. Where the people or natural systems could build a machine that was capable of making a copy of itself. And so over the past five or Six years. I've done a lot of uh, building of things like 3D printers and other computer-controlled machine tools. I've also been working on um, kind of hist- histories of electronics proper. So this the sort of story that I, I hint at in this book. I'm I'm kind of interested in in exploring those 20th century stories about the history of electronics in terms of method. Uh, A lot of my recent work has been focused on doing things with kind of computer-assisted use of of, of visual images, of um, kind of using techniques from computer vision and image processing to automatically go through sources and extract. Uh, all of the images to classify them automatically into things like photographs and drawings and so on and then in terms of things like the electronics to even to pull out the things that are electronic schematics and to try to break those down and do some machine understanding on those and so that's yeah that's a kind of a current area for me and, and for a few of my students and colleagues is 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 engaging basically with the, with the enormous amount of, of visual evidence that's being created now digitally on a kind of day to day basis. Supposedly, something like a billion photographs are uploaded to Facebook every few days. And if you think about those as sources for future historians, uh, we're definitely going to need machine assisted image mining, just the same way that we now, you know, those of us who are in digital history are now using text mining. And so that's, that's really methodologically where my work has been.
1: Awesome. Well, best of luck with all of that stuff. I'll look forward to talking with you about the next book when it's out in like three weeks, four or weeks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And thanks so much, Phil. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Thank you, Carla.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.